Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. another episode of the good music podcast i'm lucas i'm grant and i'm ethan and if it is the first time that you are listening to to us we would like to give you a big welcome uh subscribe if you like what you're hearing uh comment on instagram or facebook if after this episode's over and you're like i loved that where can i get more of it here's a way that you can do that on patreon you can subscribe to us on Patreon as well, and you get early episodes, um, and then you get the special after-hour segment, which is constantly evolving. We're about to uh, change up the after-hours uh, a teeny tiny bit because it's been swaying um, an interesting direction lately, but we'll have more news on that uh, <laughs> coming up later. But if you're new, yes, listen through the entire podcast we have tons of content to cover every single week but lucas you have some uh very interesting news yeah so two days after we recorded our iron maiden episode i got some big news about iron maiden there was actually two bits of information came out on the same day Mm -hmm. The first is that they're releasing a brand new live album, which again is so funny because our episode is about a live album of theirs. Yeah. (laughs) Do you you guys remember me talking about their current tour, Legacy of the Beast, Mm -hmm. where they had like this, they have a giant set piece every song? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the the tour that they're doing the live album of. It's in, (laughs) it's from Mexico City, I think. Wow. And they did a uh, advanced release of Aces High, which was the opening song on that tour. So we were a little early. Yes, like a couple days. <laughs> but then but then the bigger news is that they also announced that they're back in the studio making a new album. What? That, that was the one that you texted me about like as soon as it happened in all caps. Uh-huh. Maiden is in the studio and you were like fanboying all over the fact that, you know, we were going to get more Iron Maiden and mm-hmm. he was asking you about all the Iron Maiden that I've listened to, which I have actually. I went all the way through those five albums and I really enjoyed them. They're very good. They are really, really Are we going to do a, a a third installment of Iron Maiden just on their new album? <laughs> oh, um, well, we would probably do like an episode of like their their latest albums, the, the later portion of their career. But this will be their first album since 2015. So they've kind of taken a, a bit of a long time since that album has come out it better be good and it's kind of a lot of were uh wondering if it was going to be their last album because it had been quite a while since the last one had come out and considering that book of souls is one of their 
best in my opinion. Um, I think that it's not just like a oh yeah they're a great band but their recent stuff hasn't been as good so we're not as excited with how good Book of Souls was I'm really excited to see what they're going to do with this next record especially they've now done multiple tours doing like retro deep cut tours where they're like bringing out stuff that they haven't played in 20-30 years or ever and it's um all of that is making me wonder if this is gonna be like kind of a a retro sounding record or kind of what they'll do with it because they kind of been channeling a really cool side of their catalog lately on tour so all that just makes me really interested to see what this album is going to be like yeah yeah i would agree and i just think it's really funny that all all that news came out just a couple of days after we spent an entire night talking yeah. about them. <laughs> and that's really, I'd probably be really great for the podcast. You know, everyone uh, probably looking back now, it hasn't released for us yet. So we don't know how well it's gone, but obviously most of the listening base does. So it- I've found that uh, coincidences like this have been happening often. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is like there's a there's a very big coincidence happening with next week's artist, which I'll maybe talk about at the end of the episode, yeah. so I don't spoil it. Yeah, yeah. But the when I realized it happened, I was just like, oh my gosh, I could not have planned that more if I wanted to. Yeah. So. Um, but I think we can go ahead and jump into this episode, and we are taking a big swerve away from the world of heavy metal oh, yeah. into uh, the realm of pop. So we've switched now from Grant being the authority, and Ethan <laughs> is going to be Whatever. the... <laughs> I, I have no idea what's going on, so yeah. <laughs> I guess I say that this is this is more in your world, Ethan. Yes, it's more in my world. And this is, uh, I believe, one of your favorite artists, or close to he, one of your favorite I mean, artists. Yes, my Michael Jackson is. Um, he's one of those people where it's like, in the pop world, like you can't talk about the any any version of modern pop without his name coming up in the history book you know mm-hmm. and so absolutely it, it's it's less of a uh anyone that likes pop has that's a musician has to at least at least tip their hat to michael jackson even even if even if you um don't love his music which i i do like his music but even if you don't love it you you have to be like you know what it's you know, he's, he's, he's we wouldn't be where we are. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he. Um, we're dealing with an artist that is in the highest possible echelon that an artist can be in. Yep. You know, he he is one of the few people that can say that they are on an equal level with uh, the Beatles and Elvis and um just kind of those those 
those top, top, top level yeah. people. I knew that... I knew the words to the chorus of Billie Jean before I even knew my mom's middle name. <laughs> That's how important he is. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I this is factually correct. I knew the chorus of Billie Jean before I knew my mom's middle name. Because we were, you know, in in the in a kind of the way that we were like a like a purple rain family. We were also a very big Michael Jackson family, also because of my mom, uh, because that was kind of her side of the '80s as well. So, mm -hmm. it, it he is a household name in a different way that Ozzy Osbourne is. As like Ozzy Osbourne's there because he's like a meme. Michael Jackson there is is, is a household name because everybody actually listens to him. He's the Elvis of the '80s. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, just there, there is no bigger name of the eighties and no, um, I mean, just, I feel like, you know, you look at the different decades, like obviously Elvis had a stranglehold on the fifties. The Beatles had a stranglehold on the sixties. I'm not really sure anyone had a stranglehold on the seventies. There was kind of several that you could say were equally big, but then when it came to the eighties, yeah, Michael Jackson just had that decade by the balls. <laughs> I mean, he out of there came the the biggest selling album of all time. Yep. And then he followed it up with like the fifth best selling album of all time. He had the voice, he had the live persona the dance moves the musicians the good music behind them it was mm -hmm. it was another everything came together perfectly yes he came at the absolute perfect time i mean had he been a couple years too early or too late he probably wouldn't have been as big he still would have been you know one of the biggest artists of all time but I don't think that he would have made the biggest album of all time had he not been right there doing what he was doing at that time. He just, he came in right as music was changing when we were figuring out how to move from the seventies to the eighties. I think that he was one of the key components of helping make that shift. Are we allowed to talk about the Jackson five before we talk about him specifically? We'll uh, we'll touch briefly okay. on it, but I'm gonna save most of that for an episode in of itself. I figured, just wanted to make sure. <laughs> it's something that I probably wouldn't have originally done until I did my research for him and realized that um, the Jackson Five was a much bigger entity than I ever really realized. Ooh. I thought that the Jackson Five was just around like in the early '70s, and then. When Michael went solo, he didn't do anything with them anymore. Oh, and I actually learned that he were the that the Jackson Five, and then they actually changed their name just to the Jacksons. They were really in full force until about Thriller came out, hmm. which I had no idea. Was he still with them? But, yeah, like they were doing tours together in the early '80s, and not, and they weren't like reunion tours. It was like business as usual. Wow! And he would do, you know, he was doing stuff from off the wall on that on those tours, and you know, he was he was a huge star at that time, but he wasn't 
he still had to make that last step into being the star. And so um, it was really cool to kind of find that there's this whole other phase of their career that is like, wow, like this stuff holds up. This stuff is really good and really showed that that was actually where Michael Jackson polished his solo routine. What do you, what do you mean solo routine? So like, that's, you know, he pioneered a lot of his dance moves while on Jackson five songs. And when he would play with them live, right. that's when he was really kind of crafting and you can hear all of the stuff that would eventually become off the wall in that mid to late seventies period with the Jacksons. Like you hear some of their, um, their material. And it's just like, Oh, I can see the, his music really starting to um, evolve right here. And so that was really cool. So what time frame are we talking about as, as we like get into actually talking about Michael Jackson's, first albums like who are what other musicians and what other bands were around during this time so michael jackson first went solo like in the early 70s Mm -hmm. so when he was when he was still very young and his first couple solo records it still sounds like old jackson five because he's only 11 12 years old but it's interesting because you actually get to hear his voice change throughout these solo records. Like yeah, his first one his first one came out in 72. Okay. So um at about this time is when the Jackson 5 started to decline in popularity, but I mean now I'm realizing they didn't decline near as much as I thought I did, but they still weren't, you know, getting number one hits consecutively in a row like they did right at the beginning. Um, but the early 70s, so this was, this would be the time when um, when Elton John was starting to get really big. Um, David Bowie, like Glam, was kind of one of the big flavors of 72. And you know, Led Zeppelin, I would say, was probably at their biggest time at that point. Um, Paul McCartney is was really starting to be really successful with his solo material. And the Eagles started to come out at this time. So that's kind of where um, hmm. popular music was at that point. And also at about this time, Motown was really starting to decline in popularity as well, which was where the Jackson 5 originally started. They were kind of one of Motown's last big groups before um, artists just started to go to these other labels. And so it was a it was an interesting time. Of, I mean, also 72, that's if you want to talk about funk and soul music that's when stevie wonder really started to hit his stride 72 would be the same time of superstition and higher ground Mm. so um 
African-American music is really starting to move more towards the funk side at this point. Uh, you look at artists like uh, Sly and the Family Stone starting to get big at this point. Um, Parliament Funkadelic. You know, these this these were the directions that yeah. uh, all of this stuff was so going. So what do you think made it? What and do you so, think made it to where what gave Michael Jackson like the stage to break out? Um so his first four solo records didn't do very well. He did have one number one single during that time, uh Ben, which I don't know if you guys have ever heard that song. Mm-hmm. Um, the main, I think the main reason it was so big was because it was the theme song to a movie, and so it just it kind of got a little bit of extra yeah. um, publicity attention. But at his fourth solo record was in '75, and then his next one was off the wall in '79. Wow! And so he actually had a a bit of a dormant period solo wise. And the reason for that was because the Jackson 5 was morphing into the Jacksons and figuring out how to become a more adult-oriented music group. Hmm. And in my opinion, after my research, that's when he really started to become Michael Jackson. Because he's really not at that point in his first four solo albums. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you see the videos uh, during that time. This is when he's starting to develop his dance moves. Um, at this point now, his voice has changed into the voice that we know now. And he's starting to, because um, when they left Motown, they um, while they were there, they were not able to write their own material. Material was written for them. Oh, wow. And once they were able to break away from that and sign to a different label, they actually got to have a lot more creative control. And that's when Michael Jackson started to assert himself as a songwriter and as a producer and arranger. So throughout his solo career, he he wrote his own stuff? No, I mean, he wrote okay. some, but he didn't, he didn't write everything like he didn't write a lot of his biggest hits but he actually i thought that he didn't write at all and so i was surprised to learn that he did write some are there are there any on this list that he didn't write i don't think so oh really okay not even the not even the off the wall representations are written by him okay oh wait um no, not those two. The the big one that he wrote off on that album was Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Oh. Yeah. He did write he did write that we song. We were missing that song. Well, we're missing a lot of stuff on this list, but we won't we won't talk about oh, what yeah. is and isn't on our six songs until we get there. Uh, with a with an artist this big and this having so many massive yeah. songs big songs are going to be missing. It's just inevitable. So don't take it personally yeah, I, if your favorite's yeah, not on I, here. I don't. I didn't write them, so, you know. Uh, but you're right. He does have a lot of really big hits, and so I had 
thought just naturally that he didn't have any anyone or he didn't write anything himself i was picturing he had like a team of people who would all write songs kind of on their own you know kind of like people writing tv shows and yeah and yeah he he did have those people but also in the kind of how i was describing last episode where you know, you had the different members of Iron Maiden that wrote, but it all had to go through Steve Harris to become an Iron Maiden song. Everything that was written had to be put through the Michael Jackson filter. Like, he had a very large say in the way things sounded, the way the song structures were put together. Um, he wasn't just showing up with the song already done and the vocals are missing. So did he do a lot of the instrumentation? Synthesization and stuff like uh, that? No, although he could play, and those are the reason why he was able to write some songs. Like he, I want to say he had some, some good knowledge on piano, mm -hmm. guitar, and mm -hmm. drums, but I don't believe that he ever physically played on his records okay minus the singing but you know he was there for the process of building the he was in he, the that's what i'm meaning like yeah he wasn't just you know just call me whenever the vocals need to be done he was a key creative component because what he would do is he would tell people exactly how he wants stuff to play but because he wasn't a music theory guy, like he didn't read music, he didn't. He would just tell, "I want it to sound like this," da 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 da, and he would sing it for them, uh -huh. and say, "That's how I want you to play it." Yeah, he would kind of. Uh, he so, would do the, if anyone knows of Timbaland, like he Timbaland teaches songwriting, and he kind of teaches it how Michael did it, where it's like he he would like Michael Jackson would beatbox the beat. And then he would mm -hmm. like hum synthesizers and like try to make the noises. And then he would like, like he would snap. Like usually what would happen is Michael Jackson would do a, like a demo take in, in the studio by himself. And he would hum and do all the stuff on it. And then he would like have that demo and then he would give that to the producer. And then the producer would like, and him would work through the, the actual composition of the song. That's actually kind of mm -hmm. cool. That's why. That's why. You yeah. So he Michael Jackson snap in the songs is because that was like the snare drum. Whenever he was beatboxing, he would do it in the mic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he he was one of those musical geniuses where it's just like he knew exactly how he wanted the song to sound before anything was even put down, and that takes a very special, t especially for musicians that don't have the theory background it means that it's just it completely comes natural to them i'm in the middle of doing research for another artist that was the exact same way that le legitimately was a genius but it was because they had that innate musical knowledge of just you know they they already hear the completed song in their head and they're going to do whatever it takes to translate what's in their mind into a physical song. Yeah, and and some people don't have that 
ability to do it immediately. I mean, um, Kiko Luriero was talking about how he writes guitar solos that, you know, you sing it and then you record yourself singing the solo and then try to learn that <laughs> because singing, singing things, it just, it coming out of your mouth, it, it takes such a long mental process that sometimes just, you know, clicking MIDI programming on a screen, just, it won't be the same. And, and so yeah. be, because your, your lungs have to be a part of the dynamics and your vocal cords make the, the different sounds and different timbres and whatever. And, and Neil Peart was the same way too. And he's a, he was the greatest drummer of all time uh, would make the samples of the different drum sounds before he, back when he had the uh, synth drums you know, sing the sound that he wants the drum to be for the demo takes and then have the, have the real guys come back later, just like Michael did and fill in the gaps with real instruments that sound professionally made and turn the song into what was in his head into something that everyone can hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just Michael, Michael had the gift, and I think that one of the things that is really underestimated about him is that part of his musical genius, because everyone will not argue that he's a great yeah. singer and that he's a great performer and dancer, but I think it also is is complemented by the fact that he was he was such a weird guy in his personal life. That I think that everyone kind of thought that he was that he was very passive and that he was very um, uninvolved in the actual creation. That he was just a oh he's just a pop star. He he shows up. Everyone else is doing the hard work. He just comes in and sings it. And it's his album, which is what you know quite a bit of pop stars today do. But he wasn't like that. He you know, he really knew his craft and he knew like, yes, of course they wouldn't be his albums without his voice, but they wouldn't have been the albums if they were just his voice. Yeah. And I guess that's the point I'm yeah, trying to get you, across. You mentioned just now his weird personal life. So yes. I don't know much about his personal life. Okay, because there's a there's a couple of uh, interesting. I'm sure it is like really weird. I know that. he has a train. I think <laughs> at his house is that a thing? Oh, oh yeah, that's that's not even yeah. close to the amount of things he has. He has like an entire amusement that's park, cool, or had. Wow. Okay. So obviously, I guess if anything has the potential to overshadow his work, it's his, all of his child molestation uh, accusations and the times that he's gone to court oh, for it. I forgot about this. It's the, it's the large looming thing that for many people that, you know, are saying you should, you should never listen to Michael Jackson again because he's, inappropriate with children and you know all all through the years like starting in the early 90s 
when he got called to court the first time and then it got dropped. And then there was the really big case in the mid 2000s. I remember watching that on TV and then he was found not guilty of anything. And then of course he died in 2010 but then last year they had the big uh, Leaving Neverland documentary come out. Which Ethan, had you Mm-mm. did you watch that? Have you did you hear about I it? Did, did you kind of hear, hear all uh, the fuss why, about it? Like it released, and I heard a bunch of drama about it, and I was like, eh, I just kind of don't want to. <laughs> I purposefully kind of avoided watching it just because I was like, ah, eh, if it's kind of like coming down like that, but I'll let you explain it. Well, I did watch it just out of sheer curiosity and just the the pers- the part of me that just wants to have all the yep. facts. And it is shocking and ins- as insane as you could possibly imagine it to be. And that's and it's because of that and the more I've thought about it, the more I've come to this disagreement that I think that it's all made up. Oh, I don't think really? it happened. And and proof has started to come out over this last year that um, a lot of the stuff that they talk about in it, it doesn't factually line up, that some of the dates are wrong, and not just like dates as in, you know, he didn't name the exact day that something happened, but like stuff to where stuff is out of order that dramatically changes the cause and effect of all of the situations and going into their past and finding out that they have a history of making up stories and that they have all this legal documentation of stuff contradicting their um, their motives and their uh, their reason for making the documentary and just all this evidence is continuing to pile up, showing that um, that Michael did not molest the two guys that said that he did. Hmm. And so I've done a lot of ancillary research because I didn't just want to take their word for it. I didn't want to take the doubters' word. I was just like, let's look at all the facts. Let's look at Michael Jackson as a person. Let's see, mm-hmm. you know, what's really going on. And I've come to my own conclusion. I don't think he molested anyone. Was he really weird with kids? Absolutely. Because, you know, it's well known that he did not have a, a real childhood. Yeah. You know, from the time he was very young, he was put right into the show business world. And not just in it, he was the star. He didn't get to do all the things that kids got to do. And with as hard as he had to work, there was something mentally that probably got flipped. I think that he was, in a way, mentally ill because he did view himself as a child in a lot of ways. And there are lots of testimonies from all these other kids that have been there, including Macaulay Culkin, who would have just as good of a reason 
to say that Michael did something to him than any other because he ended up having a really messed up life after being a child actor. But he and the majority of the other kids that were there were saying that they would just go and have sleepovers, that they would, you know, play at his amusement park and that Michael played with them as if he was a kid. He thought that he was an 11-year-old kid. Hmm. Weird. And so, I mean, would it have been really smart for him to not be around kids all the time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially one-on-one. You I know. mean, he didn't really – he didn't do himself any favors by acting that way. But I don't think that he did anything. And I think that – and, of course, now with him being dead, you know, there's – we're never going to truly know what happened. It could come out that, you know, yes, he is guilty. But all of the evidence is pointing that he was unwise but innocent. It's very likely. And I think and I think that had he gotten the mental care and help that he should have had, that things would be very different. So I felt like that that's something that you kind of have to address when you talk about Michael Jackson because it's such a major mm-hmm. part of his legacy now. In some ways, it's equal to his body of work is his legacy as a potential pedophile. That's kind of yeah. sad. Well, he wasn't doing because he had the ranch. And he had like, I mean, mm-hmm. it. Even though I agree with you that I don't think that it was true, it's it's just like, it's not very difficult to stack the deck against it against yeah, him. But it, exactly, it's, it's not one of those things where where <laughs> it would be completely implausible. But I don't think that it. Hmm. It it is a little tough. And again, that's that's, just, that's all it is. It's just a little tough. That's my that's my opinion of it. Just from everything that I have looked at, and just getting to know the man Michael Jackson very well throughout this process, I just i I feel like that that's not something he would have done. Mm-hmm. But. I could be wrong. I don't want anyone to hear that and take me as saying that this is fact. This is just, it's like um, in school when they would tell you to read the context clues. Context clues to me point to that he didn't do it. Okay. So. Man, what a guy. The, the other thing. I, I do want to talk about it about his personal life is his notable cosmetic choices of his own. Yeah. Yes. Another, another thing that probably is just as famous as yeah. his music is his ever changing. Yeah. Looks. So something that I really learned about because I actually did look into this as well Um, really looking into 
his life and there is a very strong rumor and again this is a rumor no one has proved this but the rumor is that his dad had him chemically castrated when he was a kid i have heard this to keep to yep. keep his voice high so that way he could continue to be no way. a good singer i have heard that's that. that's that's the rumor and that's that's part of the rumor I don't, as to why they think he never really grew up I I mm-hmm. knew that there was some weird stuff because all dad, that I didn't know that it would be plausible for it to go like that way. Yeah, I I don't know what the credence to that is because, you know, obviously we can't prove it because now also uh, I think it was just last year or the year before that um, Michael Jackson's dad passed away, and. Um, so we're not going to really probably know what happened unless someone involved in the process came forward. But because of that, a lot of his physical stature and hormones got affected because of it. And the reason why he was constantly changing his skin was because he would get um, those Spotchy uh, patches of white on his uh-huh. skin, and his de- his bleaching his entire body was a way of uh, of hiding oh, that. That's actually kind of smart. Now, now about it. but the thing is, is that I think also with a bit of his mental instability, that that just ended up getting taken farther and farther and farther until it just got out of control because if you notice there's a gradual lightening it's not just all of a sudden he's completely black and now he's completely white from about thriller to dangerous so like 82 to 82 to 91 there's there's this gradual shift of you know dark skin to by the time bad comes out, he's noticeably lighter. And then he just, and then he also just really struggled with his appearance a lot. In the 70s, he often talked about how he didn't like what he looked when he saw himself in the mirror. He always talked about that he didn't like how big his nose was. Um, and I just think that. You you couple that mental illness with the biggest spotlight in the world shining down on you, having literally as much money as you could possibly have, and no one around you is going to tell you no when you want to do something. I think it just all added for what started off as good and plausible uh, intentions wildly span out of spun out of control yeah i can see it what you can do whatever you want with no accountability mhm and it's it's possible that he could have suffered from body dysmorphia which is uh, a real mental condition where you no matter how much you alter your body you 
physically see a different person in the mirror and these people are they pretty much have addictions to um to plastic surgery to altering their bodies because they're trying to change their body into what they think is their ideal self almost like a really extreme version of anorexia yeah but just not limit not limited to you right. know getting skinnier this is stuff that you don't learn anywhere so. else guys. wow okay mm-hmm. uh, uh, wasn't there also something with his yeah like his hair like his, he is like hair catch on fire at like a show or something oh. yeah uh, like like burn damage on that scalp was or something. well I think that was on the yeah I think I was actually I think like on the set of a music video or something like that I don't think it was on no way it was on stage at a show um, yeah, that did happen. That because yeah, also one of the biggest things that changes is his hair, because he had a very curly afro in the seventies. I mean, his afro was massive, and then all of a sudden in the eighties, he's got kind of normal wavy hair, which it's just obvious that that's not his real yeah. hair. So, I don't, I can't say that the the fire is a reason why the hair changed, because I think his hair was already changing when that happened. Yeah, probably. Uh, there's 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 a lot of myth and rumor that surrounds Michael I mean... Jackson. He's at that <laughs> level of popularity, and the fact that again, myths tend to enlarge themselves when the person isn't there to set the facts straight. I think that if Michael Jackson were alive now, we would know more about him. I would say exponentially more than we would, even though he's only been gone for 10 years. I mean, he was such a huge personality and this was before social media and before people could like actually like publicly defend themselves in a way that reached everybody. And Mm -hmm. so I really if a newspaper picked something up and then posted it out, like it was in the paper and there's nothing you can do about it. Like if, yeah, like I just think, everything kind of stacked. I think he, him. yeah, I think he passed away right before the point where he really could have kind of come back and yeah. set the record straight. And, uh, I, I just remember the one about when we were talking about coincidences. It was his birthday the week that I was doing the research for this episode. Oh wow! Oh, right. And I just I saw it pop up in the middle. I was just like, oh, I did not plan that at all. And it just happens to be his birthday the week that I'm doing research of him. Wow. There, there are kind of three more things I want to talk about. One of them is kind of short. Um, and that would be beat it when he did that. Uh, he did that. Um, yes, collaboration with Eddie, who kind of was part of the other side of the '80s music takeover, uh, as far as like that the kind mm-hmm. of hair metal side. 
Um, and I don't, I don't know too much about the circumstances of that. I do know, at least from Eddie's perspective, that it was kind of, uh, you know, Michael Jackson's agents or whatever call him up and say, hey, he needs you to play this solo. So he comes in, does the solo, one take, and that's it. But I don't know what, what Michael's side was on that. Um, okay. I don't either because I didn't research Man, that song for this that's episode. That's the one thing where there's a crossover and you didn't even – okay. That's fine. I know. I knew I knew it. I knew as we were – I was building the puppet house. It's like Grant's going to be not, bad. Not that you didn't put it in there. there. I'm, not the, I'm not mad that you didn't put it in here. I mean it's not – it's not like a Michael Jackson iconic song necessarily. Well, it is. It 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 is. Uh, I'd, but I'd not, say it is. It's not as monolithic as something like Thriller. Oh, well, actually, it did better on the charts than oh, Thriller did. Okay. Thr- Thriller wasn't Thriller wasn't a number one single. Surprisingly, it's that not was one as of monolithic of a song. As Billy Jean. No, I would say that no, none of his songs are as exactly. Like Billy that's, Jean. My, that's my point. I don't think I don't think "Beat It" is like necessarily like oh, this is definitely like a Michael Jackson song. It, it seems to me more it's like oh, it's that one Michael Jackson song that Eddie played on. That's the way that that it's that it's talked about. I think. At least in the musical I, circle, the grand it musical is circle the, that I'm a part of. Well, I would say the rock and roll. I mean, circle even 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 the pop guy, the, the the massive, the the big pop world. Though, I mean, it was it was a massive number one hit, and I would say that it is just next to Billie Jean in iconic stature. Okay. Well. I, I guess that brings me to my next point is is the parodies of songs like Beat It with, with Weird Al. Because, because Weird Al yes. doesn't do a lot of stuff from many, many – or he does a lot of stuff from many, many different artists, but he has parodied Michael multiple times. It's because everybody knows those hooks. Yes, he has. That's That's – that was actually where he got his big break. I'm sure it is. Um, Eat it was his was the song that turned Weird Al into I a remember big that. star. Yes. When when did he start doing his thing? That's a great that's a great music video. Um, I want to say it was like mid '80s, like maybe '86, '87 was when he really started to come around. And he- I think he had been doing his. I think he had been doing his thing before, but that was like when he and started. He's to still doing get stuff big. today, from what I can tell. Yeah, and he's and he's yeah. still doing yeah. great stuff. Uh, his, uh, his one of his albums is the basically the essential Michael Jackson cover, just of him. <laughs> yeah, because he he does uh, he yes. does fat yes that is bad. Which that's always yeah. been a favorite of mine. I'm trying to think of what else he's done of his. Our, I there's a he, yeah. Those, those are the only two I can think of. But he also did one that smells like Teen Spirit. 
He did one of Gangster's Paradise. He did yeah. one of. Uh, we could go. Oh, we could. We could. We could go on and on. Because that's that's literally his job is to yeah parody other true. people. Um, and then the last thing I do want to talk about is the circumstances of his death. It seems very mysterious. Yes, it's um, well, well he he OD'd on it's not really mysterious because yeah, and his doctor was charged and, and convicted um, involuntary manslaughter. Oh, was this like a was this like Elvis situation? It was an El yeah, it was, it was a it was an Elvis situation. A a, a doctor feel good of someone that was just giving him way way more than he should have had and prescribing it because there's a there's a whole subculture of rock star doctors i mean elvis kind of set the standard for it because he was the first musician to die of something like that where you know he was not taking illicit drugs everything that he took was because his doctor told him he had to take it and so he thought he was just doing what he was supposed to, and that the doctor knows best. Michael, did same thing with Michael Jackson. For more, it was the doctor yeah. doing. You it. don't think you don't think that the rock star doctors are just prescribing more medication because they're being requested? Yeah, but at the same time, a good doctor is supposed to know how much they're supposed to have, but because. They love the notoriety of being an exclusive doctor for a big celebrity, as well as I'm sure that they're paying paid millions and millions of dollars. And they just they want to keep them happy more than they want to yeah, keep them healthy. That's not okay. A doctor a doctor should not give someone medicine just because they want it. No other a family practitioner or general doctor would yeah. do that. It's it's the you know the the Hammurabi, Hammurabi the, the Hippocratic Co oath. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah, a different thing. <laughs> I knew it was a yeah. That just they're breaking it by um, by just giving them medicine whenever they want and giving them as much as they want because they absolutely yeah, yeah. became addicted. They didn't realize they were addicted because they thought they were just getting what yep. their doctor gave them. And so, um, so yeah, in that way, it's not mysterious. We kind of do know exactly what happened, but you know, there's of course going to be your conspiracy theorists that say that Michael's not really dead, that he went off to some island somewhere with <laughs> Elvis and Tupac, and oh. um, or that you know his his doctor did it maliciously, or that a hit was put out yes, on those him. Those are the crazy things that but I've heard. I've never had it just settled straight. Of this is what happened. Legally, what happened was there's that the doctor uh, prescribed him too much uh, of some, I think, a painkiller, probably. And then he mm -hmm. OD'd on it, and uh, the the police were called. They tried to resuscitate him in the ambulance, and then he, he 
he wasn't able to be resuscitated on the way to the hospital. They didn't do the adrenaline shot to the heart. That's mm-hmm. the problem. <laughs> they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't kick, they kick start his heart. Do you guys, no. Did you guys watch his memorial service? I did not. No, I did not. I was at Dry Gulch when it happened. I remember because when when I was working at summer camp, the whole week that I'm there, I'm not allowed to have my phone even on. They would they would come into your bunks to check to see even if you had your phone on in your suitcase. That that is a that is a show. And so I, because uh, like. Queen, La- I remember like Smokey Robinson and Queen Latifah and like Stevie, Lionel Richie, a bunch of like artists like that, like performed at his, uh, or they gave eulogies or performed at the event oh, I- or whatever. I bet it was. It amazing. was like a mess. <laughs> I mean, we're talking like a like a ton of people watched it. Yeah, but yeah, just I remember I found out like three days after he died. I was just like, I got, I got my phone back and everyone was calling me saying, Michael Jackson died. And I was like, really? This is a prank. Don't do this to me. Yeah. That's, that's probably about yeah. how I would feel. So, well, with all that, I think that unless I you guys have anything else you want to throw in I'm sure. to the ring... We'll go ahead and start sure talking we'll about the song. When we do that. So yes, we will. So anyway, we'll be right back, and when we uh, come back from this message, we're going to talk about the six songs we picked for the set. So stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Michael Jackson and all the weird mythos that was surrounding him. And now it is time to talk about the six songs that we have selected for this episode. So, for those of you who are new, welcome. And you're probably wondering, what is this segment about? Why are we going to pick six songs? Didn't we just talk about Michael Jackson? Well, I'll let Lucas explain to you why we have this segment. Hello, here I am. The, <laughs> the the six songs are our way of being able to concretely talk about everything that we talked about in the first segment. So we're going to get down and dirty and just talk about what's going on in these songs, what they're about, um, what's going on interesting musically. And uh, these six songs are picked out in a way if for whatever strange reason you've never listened to michael jackson before uh these are the six best songs to get you into that world and so it's not just me picking my six favorites or what i think are objectively the six best michael jackson songs 
uh, or the six most popular ones. I'm picking songs that will serve as a great first impression as well as picking songs that flow and transition well off of each other. So that way, by the time you get to the end, you will have had a satisfying emotional experience or a catharsis. So the way that you can listen to these songs is if you go to the link in the description of the episode, it'll send you to a Spotify playlist and you will be able to not only listen to the songs in this episode, but all the songs in our previous episode, as well as I'm going to throw in a bonus to where you can look at uh, my ranking of Michael Jackson's songs from worst to best. Now in this episode, uh, unless you're listening from far off in the future where I've already done more Michael Jackson episodes, um, I have only ranked from his first studio solo album up to bad. So the stuff from the 90s and beyond is not included yet, mainly because I just don't have enough time. So, but I will complete it once we come back to Michael Jackson in future episodes. So, all that said, let's go to our first song, probably his biggest song ever, and what I put as number one in the Michael Jackson ranked playlist, and that's Billie Jean. Yep. It's great. Yep. It, it, it's, it's recognizable. And so as soon as you hear it, it's very subdued at the start. But you kind of know what you're getting into with the keys and that bass line, that iconic bass line. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this was at the uh, at the music lessons place where I'd take lessons. This was one of the the songs for our eighty you know, unit where we all together get together and learn eighty songs together. This was one of the, one of the songs, and everybody wanted to play this song. So we had like twelve people doing the guitar part. But um, and and it, it 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 was just it was so weird. It was such a different way of playing your instrument compared to a lot of the music that we talk about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And right away, especially the guitars are just treated different. I don't even think there's very much guitar at all on this song. Well, um, there, there. It's just it's very subtly used. Yeah. When right. I kind of opened my ear, yeah. When I opened my ear, though, I did find that there was uh, a good amount of it on the choruses. Because yeah, the bridge is what I would say is the most obvious use of the guitar on this yeah. song. Right. But listening, I was just like, yeah, oh, there's yeah, actually the... some pretty cool <laughs> guitar part. Like they just use it as like uh, yeah. an arrangement tool. Yeah, and, and and that bass is not mixed to be like a growling bass or like a like a solo bass like Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much in the low register. It's supposed to lay down the rhythm and all the super super duper lows. Well, this is, is a, this a different is def- way of thinking. This is definitely mixed almost like a post disco song because it does have that disco drum beat. Although I wouldn't say like the, the big one towards the hi hats on the the off beats, but you know just something like um you know something like another one bites the dust, which was very much a disco 
inspired song. It's just, it's very simple, just the way that the snare is mixed, the way that everything is very dry. It, it doesn't have the typical, what was becoming very popular at that time, the big 80s sound. Mm-hmm. This almost feels like it could have been uh, something off of Off the Wall because it has a bit of that same sensibility to it. I wouldn't be surprised if this was um, one of the first songs written for the record. I actually don't know if it was. But it would make sense that it would still live in that world a little bit because just everything, even the the instrumentation, the way everything sounds, uh, it does have a bit of a a post disco feel to it towards not i i feel like it's too good to not be the song that was put on last minute well <laughs> i think it's one of those it flows very naturally i don't believe that it was okay yeah but, and you explained why but i mean at the same time it's just it 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 doesn't sound like somebody sat down and wrote the parts to this to to fit together. It sounds like somebody laid down a baseline and then put stuff on top of it. And it happened to just be amazing because it was all feel based. This whole song is based on feel. And we, we get very far from that as we get later on the set. Yeah. Which gives us a, which is a good reason to put it at the beginning of the baseline. Right. Exactly. I, the more I'm thinking about it and the more just, again, this, this feels very similar to a lot of stuff off of Off the Wall, especially songs like uh, Girlfriend or um, Get on the Dance Floor. Um, just uh, it's, it feels like it could have lived rock with you. It feels like it's almost cut a little bit from the same cloth, but just mm-hmm. updated. A couple of years and so that's what makes me think this was not a last minute edition this almost feels like it's you know it's something that michael just these are the kinds of songs he knew how to make really well yeah and that's why that's where this evolved out of or it was just cut from the previous i i'm pretty sure it wasn't written at the same time but I think that okay. it's just like that's that's it's the natural next step. Now this this is the song with the moonwalk, isn't it? Um, I believe that is the case because every time I see someone do it on YouTube, it's to this song. I don't I don't think it is because I watched the music video again, and I don't think that because he had been doing the moonwalk before this song. This was something oh. that was actually a move that he perfected when he was with the Jacksons. Yeah, I can I cannot do the moonwalk. I really think sad. that it's I think that that's more of an off the wall era move. Uh, although it could be that I just I'm really sure that he doesn't moonwalk in this in that music video. It could be just that they moonwalk to that song because it's you know, one of the big iconic MJ songs. And it's got, yeah. it's got a good groove to do it to. It's not too fast, mm-hmm. but I'm, and I could be completely wrong, but I don't remember seeing him moonwalk in that video. 
it's a weird video it's like step you step on the different things and they light up or whatever and it's the weird like purpley background i don't remember mm-hmm. i saw the music video when i was like six so yeah it's it's also an interesting and this again is is making me think that this is this is really a bridge song this is the song that bridges the old michael to the new michael is that it's not the big bombastic 12 minute epic music video that he would pretty much do for just about every video afterward it's very simple there's not even really a piece to it it's it's a little it's more stripped back it's more sparse he's you know the even the the video footage is not super clear you know, it's not the big production value of even songs off the same album like Beat It and Thriller. And it's certainly not to where he would start taking it on on bad. <laughs> yeah, that was like a mini episode of like Yeah, that's some... like seventeen minutes. That was that was a Disney Channel special. <laughs> um mm-hmm. it... Yeah, I don't know. I had something it, to say about this. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> it feels it feels like a lot of that routine is just is an extension of his stage work. Yeah, which again, I'm not saying that to demean it in any way, but that's just there's just this feeling, this feeling of looking at everything around it that that this song was meant to be kind of the um, the bridge point between the the 70s michael and the 80s michael it wasn't the first off the album was it no okay actually and what i would actually say is one of my biggest complaints with thriller as an album is i don't like the way that this the album is ordered did he order it based on like how well he thought the songs would do commercially no because a lot of the deeper uh, non-single cuts are at the beginning. Yeah. The only... Oh my uh, god. Because Billy Jean and Beat It are on side two. And those are the two number ones on the album. Oh my gosh. They ordered it like... <sighs> Never mind. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> yeah, there's just... I feel like the album isn't as well paced. Yeah. I think that it dramatically improves when you mess around with the with the structure of it. But, it's redeemable. Because, oh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. It, it's still a brilliant record. I was just right. saying, like, if you were to find one complaint with the album, but, yeah. that would be it. But that's, that's the thing about albums is they're not just collections of songs. Mm-mm. You know, they're supposed to... So maybe you can say the songs on the album are fantastic. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of how, like, the lines said in a movie are amazing. But the movie itself, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't flow well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the the songs just have this this strange energy to them when they're presented in that way. And I think that um, when you reorder the songs that you definitely add this new element as it's like okay now I this would, is interesting I, 
I would love to hear a Lucas Christman reordered thriller. Album. Ooh, <laughs> that might way. be something I have to work on. I because I think because I think putting Billy Jean as the second song on side two is a weird, weird choice. <laughs> I don't get it. You know, like having side two yes. open up with "Beat It," then Billy Jean. And thrillers not even on that side. It's just kind of like, huh, this is this is weird. <laughs> so, anyway. uh, Ethan, what do you, what do you have to say about this song? I think, and we'll see this with all the other songs. So one of the big things that makes pop songwriting really good, in, in a weird way, and if anyone out there has taken like classical theory classes you get there's a really important um like you have like your low melody and you have like your high melody like and usually in classical composition it's like oh you have like you know kind of counterpoint between whatever your high melody is and your low melody is and that was really important for a long time and some genres, whenever we kind of came into the 21st century, some genres kept it, some genres ditched it, you know. But one thing, at least to me, one thing that I always love about songs, and you can tell a huge difference once you start paying attention to it, where it's like pretty much every one of these songs, unless it's like a ballad, like has like a bass line that's very good, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of that low bass melody and it just fits really well with the high end melody and so I mean, that's what pop is it's just is that bass melody pretty much you just get two melodies and you squish them together and arrange it you know <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like with Billie Jean the, the thing I like about Billie Jean is even though you have that bass line and kind of that vibe going the whole time it doesn't feel like it's repetitive because they bring in the they bring in the electric guitar they bring in the strings they they'll like kind of uh show an instrument for a little bit and then they'll like hide it again you know and the in the pre-chorus um the bass line kind of stops and it goes to something that's a little bit more simple and it really introduces the strings in the in the pre-chorus you know so arrangement wise it's really good, but it just grooves. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just that's my thoughts on Billie Jean. Lucas, what is the song mm-hmm. about? Oh so he said that there is not an actual person named Billie Jean. Okay. And that the song is based off of his older brothers in the Jacksons that would constantly have this uh, scenario because he said that they were ladies men and that they would get accused by women all the time of having their baby <laughs> and of course you know this is pre-DNA so there was actually no real way to prove it unless like you know the kid grows up to be your exact clone so you know as long as the father is saying, hey, I didn't, I never was with this girl. And if they don't have like the photographs or the eyewitnesses yeah. to prove it, then, you know, you didn't have paternity tests back then. So that was just 
Michael kind of saying that, and he so he did write the lyrics to this song, and it's just him kind of recalling those incidences, seeing that as he's growing up, and just kind of creating a story out of it. That that the women would accuse the other brother, uh huh, saying oh. pretty much, pretty much saying that you know you had my baby, I'm you know, and it's just you know it's it's almost like just the the common uh, celebrity tale of you know you have people come off the news and say I was Michael Jackson's secret lover that he never told anyone about. I was with him for seven years, and he told me to never tell anyone. But I had three kids with him, and now I'm going to make sure that I get $50 million as compensation. Yeah. Huh. You know, it's, it's, it's women that are looking for fame, money, and recognition above all else. And, you know, just the showing that when you get to a certain level of fame that the scrutiny and the microscope is on you and that you become a target for crazy people. That is certainly the case. That has, man, if you look at uh, not only Dimebag, which was, well, that was terrible. Um, But there was a, there is a famous Mexican, um, pop artist who is about to expand i think into america or maybe it was the other way around and i think selena um, yeah i was about to say are you talking about selena i was talking about selena that's who i was talking about and um she had a really huge fan named who named yolanda who wanted to run her fan base and wanted to run her fan page and merchandise and all this stuff and they be, they ended up becoming really really good friends, but it just so happened that Yolanda was a little bit um, uh, insane, ill, insane, whatever whatever word you want to use, and ended up killing her over something stupid. And then as soon as that happened, you know, Yolanda felt like she had no purpose, and like she had just killed her best friend over something about controlling her best friend who was this celebrity that she had followed around and obsessed over, you know? And so, yeah, you do become a target for people like that. And, and it's, I, it's really interesting knowing the story of this song. I thought it was something a little bit less intellectual, (laughs) you know, but having talked about it, maybe, (laughs) you know, I thought, well, I, I thought it was literally just him being like, no, that's not my kid. What are you talking about? But like, okay. It's not from his perspective. It's him just just being like, no, people can take advantage of you when you're famous. Mm-hmm. And it was something that he was really starting to experience at that point. And I mean, it just it ties into what we were saying in the first segment about, right. you know, he he got to this level of fame where it's just, you know, people of that level of notoriety, the, they have to have lawyers on retainer because they literally get sued on a monthly basis by people. Either people claiming, um, you know, that there's paternity with a child or, 
you've got the crazy people that come in and said, I wrote Billie Jean in 1976 and he stole my idea. <laughs> and, or, you know, Billie Jean made my son insane and I want, you know, restitution because I now have to take care of him for the rest of my life. It's just like, there's stuff like that. that... There was some Aussie stuff related with, with that one. That was bad. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's literally, you know, most of those we don't ever even hear about because they get dropped as soon as it gets anywhere in the beginning stages of litigation, because there's, most of them, there's no basis for it whatsoever, but you still have to have, you know, lawyers to deal with that. To And, you know, even if as a celebrity, you do everything right, you cross your T's, you dot your I's, you reach a certain level of fame, it's inevitable. It will happen. It's not if, it's when. Yeah. That's kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When makes you kind of food. Yep. It kind of makes you think twice about wanting to be rich and famous. Yeah. You did make me think a few times already. Uh, although I would like to have my own amusement park. I would not I'm, be very irresponsible with it like Michael was. I would just keep it to myself. Well, how would you know? Again, no you one, don't know. You don't no know how crazy you'll like. become until you have... I heard someone describe it as (laughs) Michael Jackson was so rich that he had giraffe money because he just had the money to buy giraffes. (laughs) Giraffe money. (laughs) I'm swimming in that giraffe money. So I've actually started using that in my day-to-day conversation. I'm just like, man, he's got giraffe money. (laughs) (laughs) He's got pet monkey money. I'm going to use that too. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I think we can go ahead and move on to the next song. <laughs> yes, I th- I think we should too. And I I think this was in the running for my favorite song. Well, this this is my it is this is my favorite. Wow! So this song is, by the way, the way you make me feel. The way you make me feel. This has been my favorite since I was like six years old. Oh wow! And it's just, it's always stuck with me. There's just the melodies, the the upbeatness of it. I just made up a word. And um, just the, the overall sound of it. There's just something about it that just like makes me so happy when I listen to it. It's a great and song. it's really fun to sing along to. Yeah, it, this one... I will say I had to be more objective on this set because all of the song. Well, we'll get to one of the songs on the set that I didn't like so much, but we can talk about when we get there. Um, Interesting. I five of the songs on this set are top notch, amazing, and it just stratospheric hits, and I love all of them so much. But it's just, and this one I liked maybe if I were to be a little bit more partial, most days I would say this one was my favorite. So I had to be a little bit more objective, and this one didn't quite win. Hmm. Uh, But I will say that it was very, very close. It's just got, it's just got the swing to it. Yes, it does. It makes you want to tap your foot. I don't care who you are. You could be Drax's wife and you would tap your foot. 
He gets yes. the reference. <laughs> so this is a uh, this is a number one hit off of Bad, which Bad does hold the record for most number ones off of one album. It's got five. Oh wow! <laughs> so stupid. Five, five number one singles off of one record. Can you name them? Yep. It's Way You Make Me Feel, Man okay. in the Mirror, Bad, Dirty Diana, Just Can't Stop Loving You. Was that four or five? That was five. Okay, then that that's the five. And the crazy thing is that Smooth Criminal is on that album, and that wait, wasn't the number one hit. Wait, what? That's a good album. That's a stacked album. I know. How many songs it's are a, Like seven or eight? Uh, no, it's actually like a... a 10 or 11 song album oh wow oh right because he writes shorter songs than that and we're in cd era too no we're not in cd era at that point yet this okay. is this is prop i think cd had been invented but it wasn't being widely widely used at that point this would still be the ma- the majority of people would have vinyl okay i would say like 88 89 is when CD kind of really started to come in force. We're not. Whoa. Oh, I am. Um, I got my years off. I thought we were in the early nineties for some reason. No, uh, bad came out in 86. I got you. maybe 87, 86. I would not have put it that early. That's 87, crazy. 87, 87. That still seems very, very early. It seems like he was almost predicting where like '90s pop was going to go. I mean, oh, absolutely. I don't think he was predicting it as much as he was defining it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's he true. pretty much he pretty much just said, "This is what it's going to be." Yeah, just because I say so. Man, the sounds in this are great. <laughs> yeah, that, that bass thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so almost good. not even a note. It's supposed to be a note, but it sounds more like a like the attack on the. It almost a little it bit almost more. feels like a percussion. Element. Yes, like somebody hit a marimba and then just put yep. it through a guitar amp. That's what it sounds like to me. Usually, I think what? that fade out those songs are lazy, but I don't feel like that on this song. <laughs> they are always. We're gonna. Lazy. They're always lazy. We're... I'd break it. No, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> Whatever. Not always. There are. I've got. I already know a song where I, I there's a there's a we're gonna cover it next year. I've already got it planned out, and it's one of the most brilliant uses of a fade out. I would say that a notable exception would be Red Barchetta because it had a fade in. Yeah, and it kind of fits with the theme of the song, but. Billy Jean has a fade out too, though. To me, if you're gonna, well, if you're gonna play the song live, you need to have a plan. I think all, I think all of these songs have have a fade out. (laughs) No, Uh, they don't. Not all of them. No, Um, but two of the songs don't. With the with the dance era, like you have to you have to think like, I mean, the songs just have that repeatable just infinite danceable kind of part to it. And it's mm-hmm. like, let's just fan it on that. And another big reason why 
songs have fade outs, especially radio songs, is because it's the perfect opportunity for the host to come in as the song, the previous song is still playing and be able to just smoothly transition into the next song. You don't have that dead airtime. Yeah. Yeah, but then also it's like if it's a live ending, then you can go immediately to it. Whatever. Because people expect the full fade out. I don't know. I don't know. I think this is this is a debate that we can have in our after hours segment. By the way, hey. Patreon. Hey, there we go. People, look at that. Shameless We're also going to continue because uh, talking about Michael Jackson, we have to talk about Grant's hatred of dancing in live shows. What? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh this yeah. Is, this is the big. Uh, the big kryptonite to that argument. We <laughs> no, that's not no. Uh uh-uh, uh, because whatever. We'll we'll get there. We'll get there later. I will I have I already have my argument planned out. Okay. Um, so Ethan, uh what for you is what for you is the standout of this song? I mean it it's this not in a bad way, but this song is the same formula as Billy Jean where it's just like get just a a, a, just a stanky bass line and then just arrange parts you know like that just support that except in this one we get even less variation than we do in Billy Jean because that is pretty much like going on throughout the entire song with like one chord change, you know, to like the mm-hmm. four and then the five and then kind of back down. It's just the, then... the melody is just so good. And the point mm-hmm. where they put the stops and stuff and I love that that kind of I guess there's not like really a bridge, but like I don't even know what instrument that is that like whatever that is. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It it feels like a guitar. Just a super but just with a lot of with a lot of effects on it i love the the horn stabs in it like it's just that seems that it just seems like again if you if you really analyze billy jean and you really analyze the way you make me feel it's like the nuances of the songs are what make it so good because it's like the horns will just kind of randomly come in like the guitar part will randomly come in it's just I'd have to say I'd have to say that I see your random fills of instruments, but I'd have to say for me it's the percussion nuances. It's the random tasteful tom fills. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would add right. that in there though, is like it's it's trucking along in this really predictable way. And whoever I think did Quincy Jones produce this? Yeah, this is the last album that he did. So, uh, the way that it's just like the song is just trucking along, and then it's like, oh, let's do a drum thing here. Let's do a horn stab here. Let's bring, you know, let's bring a keyboard thing in over here, and just keeping it paced that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's something that you can only do if you have that bass line with the percussion there to yeah. make sure that everything. Is locked it in. Stays on right? the train. You, you can't 
you can't add nuance if there's not something to add nuance to. Yeah. The other thing is we see in this song is you mentioned this in the first section was that clap, that iconic clap. Sounds like a million people clapping at exactly the same time in yeah. a giant like steel storage unit. Uh, and that's and it's also it, that only comes in on the courses to make the courses better paced. Yes, and it happens on the next song. Yeah, and I believe it happens on the last song. So this happened. This this clap happens all over the place in his music. And this mm-hmm. is a, I don't think it was on Billy Jean, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was just snare drum. Yeah. So. Uh, by the way, I did put this at number three on my ranked playlist. Oh. Ooh. Uh, we have number two here? Yes, we do. Okay, good. I'm excited. Okay. Hopefully it's the next song. <laughs> oh. oh. It is not the next song. Ah, I would say the next song is my personal favorite out of the six. Oh, yeah. It's, but it's, man, it's so good. <laughs> if we're ready to go there. We can go. Yeah, ahead. we can go ahead and go there. So the this... the third song is "Rock with You," which I love the synth, guys. The wah, wah, wah. yeah, wow, 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 wow. It was so disco. Wow. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and the yeah, everything about this is just it's disco, but not. It's like disco pop. Yeah, so this uh, this was off the Off the Wall album, right. and this was another number one single. And this album came out in '79, which '79 is the year that not only disco hit its zenith, but that it instantly died. <laughs> oh, like there was yeah. there was literally there's literally disco a date. did not make it to the '80s, like. Like, no, it's I can't remember the exact date, but it's some date in August that there was like a legitimate day where one day it was big, second day it was gone. Like people just stopped listening to disco. Uh huh. Yep. Was... It became uncool. Why is the disco sucks? Well, because it got so oversaturated that there was just a critical mass of just. It it just crumbled under its own weight. Oh, I guess because disco is kind of one of those things that's built off of a very particular yes set of rules. Uh huh. There's there's not a lot of variation in how disco sounds. There's there's certain things that have to be there. But off the wall was being made during this time, and it actually comes out a little bit after the day that disco dies but you can hear that he's already moving past in a way what disco was that he's that it's it's still a bit of a post disco record Mm -hmm. where it's it's got the elements to where it could still be relevant but you don't feel like you're just listening to another disco record as was the feeling that people kept having around 79 was just, Oh, and even, you know, major acts all started to get on the disco, like kiss. Uh, when they released their, I was made for loving you that got them so much hate because it was a disco song. 
Um, a lot of big bands tried to have that big disco number and um, some of them succeeded like Queen writing another one bites the dust best one of the, or one of the best creative decisions they ever made because it ended up being their biggest selling single in the United States. Well, that also kind of transcends disco, I would say in the same way with, that this song does. Exactly. And so that was that was a bit of a post disco cuz that came out in 80. Yeah. And so it it has one foot firmly in that genre like when the in the strings and rocking the banana yeah. that's such a disco line like you could not mistake that for any other genre um though just the bpm that this is set at is perfect for a good you know Ooh, some good mid jam dance and the and, and the uh, falsetto harmonization with the uh-huh. voices yeah but then exactly it it's it transcends it though this has become this is not considered by your normal person to be a disco song they just see it as a good song like a, your ordinary music listening person can identify a disco song like they'll listen to a bg song from saturday night fever and go yep that's a disco song or they'll hear a donna summer song and they'll be able to to easily go oh yeah that's disco but you show them this song it's a bit more with a perceptive ear that you're gonna go oh wait this is actually got a lot of disco in it yeah but to your normal person they're just gonna go oh this is just a great michael jackson pop song yeah and i think that that's where its real strength lies the pre-chorus on this song is so good (laughs) yes it is like it sets up the chorus so well. And even in the chorus, we we get more of that, like, kind of the, the Michael Jackson formula of having, it's like you have your, it's like you have the foundation of the building of the song built, you know? Where it's like, mm-hmm. we have the drum beat locked in, we have the vocal melody locked in, we have the bass really locked in, and now we can just add whatever we want on top of it. You know, yeah, like having having the horns is yeah sweet, and even the like that little synth thing that comes in. Oh yeah, but it's it's like that fills the same spot as the on the way you make me feel, like the that like the guitar, the weirded out guitar thing that we talked about. It's the squeed like, you, you can see the formula of his songwriting, you know, or his mm-hmm. producing, where it's just like, like all of these songs have had a pre-chorus, you know, that that changed the mood and set up the chorus, and then they all, mm-hmm. none of them really have. A, I guess "Rock with You" kind of has a bridge, like technically. Yeah, it's, yeah. The the and when the groove is yeah. dead and gone. Yeah, that, I would call that a bridge. But it doesn't stay there for very long. It's that that's no. pretty much a an alternate pre-chorus to set up the key change, honestly. Yeah. Oh man, when that key change hits and he hits that big note. Yep. And <sighs> it's not on the one. No, it's it's a really weird note, actually. Yeah, I can't even place where it is, like the three and or something weird. Um but there usually you'll have a key change 
right on the one. You'll go up by like one half step, maybe a full step, maybe even three half steps if you're Judas Priest. You know, it, but this this not being on the one throws you for a loop, but you don't feel it because it's during a really active melody that's more active than a, the, a lot of the other melodies in the rest of the song. And so you're just, your ear is like kind of pulled every which direction and then all of a sudden it all comes together on the one. And it's like, whoa, we're in a different key now. And it kind of just kind of throws you for a loop if you're not expecting it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's a uh, so yeah. At this point in the set, you know, we're still sticking with upbeat songs, but there there is a bit of a shift in the mood, especially when that key change hits. Yep. That you kind of feel a little bit that we're gravitating towards a different mood. And um, that really solidifies itself once we get to our next song. Unless you guys had something else no. to say about, we get that. Sweet, I have, I have that sweet one fade question. out. Okay, that sweet I've, fade out. I have one question: Is yes. our next song on the album immediately after this song? No. Okay, because it felt like such a good transition. I felt like it was meant. Yeah, no, this they're actually on different sides of the album. <laughs> okay. This was the song that I was talking about earlier that I didn't really like so much. And we can we can get that's what I would have guessed. We can and get we're gonna, to why. We're gonna change your mind. I okay. I expect to I have your see, mind. Changed. I think I can already see it lyrically, and when we get to the lyrics, I I'm interested to hear that because it sounds to me like there's something really interesting going on. Um, so, but, by, by the way, uh, Rock With You, I have a number five on okay. the list. And this song is She's Out of My Life. Yes, which I have, I gotta, actually, I gotta count. It is at number... Um, oh, it's pretty far down there. Just No, it's at number eight. Oh. <laughs> I just had to... Oh, whatever. It's like just high enough that I gotta make sure it's. I don't say seven or nine or something. I want to make sure I spin this in a positive light. Um, the song starts really well. I'll leave it at that. It starts um, amazing. It starts amazing. It has that beautiful string section that was written so well. And then you have the guitar come in with that really mm -hmm. clean delayed stuff and the organ come in and whatever. And I think there's chimes in there somewhere. And when his voice comes in, it's really sweet and and subdued but still very full in his very michael jackson way mm -hmm. um, so what i wanted to what i wanted to do with this song again framing this for people that this is their first step into michael jackson i wanted to just have a song where there's there's nothing in the way except for just realizing how great of a pure singer he was well, then the song definitely did its purpose here. Because yeah. sometimes it can get lost in the in the the shamones and the <laughs> and the woos and the hee hees. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, it can he can almost be seen as a bit of a gimmicky singer because he's got all of these idiosyncrasies to his singing. 
And this is a song where there's none of that. It's just him singing. There's barely any instrumentation. There's no drums. There's no beat leaving you through the song. It's it's a in a very uh, low mixed pad underneath. Like his vocals are front and center, and it completely supports the whole song. And you just you can't really notice anything except for his voice and just seeing how good of a voice he had. Yeah. I I don't know if I I would agree that this definitely serves that purpose. One hundred percent. but I don't know if I I enjoy it as much compositionally as we get through the song. I feel like I'm wanting it to progress somewhere. Our last two songs of this set do that very, very well. They they will start amazing and they'll change to a very different amazingness that, that keeps the tension rising and keeps the awesomeness building. This one, I, I wouldn't say does so much, but I think it's okay, you know, for for uh, the, the, I think the lyrical purpose that it's serving. It's just, it's just not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. It's my own personal bias towards songwriting and how I think songs should go. And I'm sure that, you know, all of the hundreds of people who are listening to this podcast are going to listen and be like, Grant, you have very bad taste in music. This is an amazing <laughs> song. But that's just, that's just me. I will say, compositionally and songwriting-wise, I agree with you that it's out of the norm. But it, I think it's because lyrically what it's doing since it's a sad song because it's it's pretty much like verse verse chorus verse pretty much you know yeah and mm-hmm. one i think the chorus is 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 a, an astounding chorus the yeah. amazing because it's just and and it even, does so it, many in- it brings the pace up just enough because like the bass kind of comes and it gives it a little bit of pace uh, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of like two verses and then a chorus that kind of solidifies the concept and then a verse at the end is kind of like a taking it down almost as a almost as a coda like a like a lament mm-hmm. and and that's where i was like uh verse verse chorus and then ending on a verse and the song's only like three minutes maybe 330 or something like yeah. that it's just a short I like it, and and I was it kind of had me hooked. Usually, usually she's out of my life would have been my favorite song because I like the songs in the sets where it's like the really random twist, like the kind of dramatic twist in the set. I have yep. a lot of respect for the set list gets me, you know, it messes with my emotions. Mm-hmm. But Rock with and... Me is just so good, I couldn't help but not pick it. But like in this, yeah. I I I see where songwriting wise in comparison to like the other like in comparison to like Billy Jean you know I agree with you like pacing, the pacing of the song is like way right. left field but I think the pacing of the song is right for this for this song I, I think if, mm-hmm. if he had more songs that were like this it would feel really repetitive but for this one I was happy with like verse verse chorus verse yeah and uh, and this song will also serve as 
a calm before the storm that is to come in the set. And that's intentionally kind of the mood that I wanted to really create, especially if you're able to tap into the emotion that he's bringing, which we'll also talk about that because, um, like, like he listened, he, he legitimately cries. It's not a fake cry. They did seven different takes and he cried on every single one of them. And if you listen to the stems, he apologizes to Quincy every take and says, I'm sorry, I just, I can't help it. And eventually Quincy's just like, you know what? Let's leave the crying in there because it sells the emotion of the song. So what is this song lyrically about? So Michael did not write this one. This was by one of his songwriting guys. It was actually, I don't even think it was one of his guys. It was a, uh, a song that Quincy Jones just had for, I think, a couple years now. And he just didn't have the right artist to give it to. And it was, but it was the, the songwriter just writing about the real breakup that he just witnessed. In fact, he wrote it in the car on the way home from the breakup. Wow. And it was like his, his therapy in a way. And so um, Quincy just had it in his back pocket and was just like, oh, let's give this to Michael and see if he can do something with it. And, but Michael, and this is what he was so good at with all the songs he was given is that he knew how to inhabit and make the song feel as if he wrote it because, and that's again, like the legitimate crying. He's not crying because he's remembering how he felt when he wrote it because he didn't write it but he connected with the pathos of the song so much that it just overwhelmed him every time he sung it and he would even cry when he would sing it live it was just like there was something about and it just fueled all of these uh you know theories by young women saying who's the the Dumb girl that broke <laughs> Michael Jackson's heart. Billy Jean. That's I, I would I would never do that to Michael. <laughs> I would never make him cry like that. Yeah. And that and that helped sell the song immensely. And so just he he was really good at being able to tap into the emotional center of what a song really was about, even if he didn't write it. And okay. so um, I I really love it. And this is a song that, you know, when I was younger, I always skipped over this song because I was just like, this is the dumb, boring song. I want to listen yeah. to the fun songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's as I've gotten older that I've really appreciated the song more and more to where I was just like, oh, wow, this is just a really beautiful, intimate song. And I like, and specifically, I think serves the set that it doesn't go anywhere. It lets you kind of just sit in this emotion and not have any rises or falls. You just get to sit in the sadness. And I think that if you're really emotionally paying attention, when the turn comes at the transition of the next song, I think that it becomes that much more effective. So... My last question before we get there, and I know you really want to get there because this is the second time you've tried to transition. <laughs> uh, no, it's only the first. 
is there any lyrical arc? It sounds like there's almost a emotional arc happening lyrically, as if he starts the song in a in a more questioning mood of like maybe this is like I don't know how I feel about this kind of thing, and then ends it in a definite sadness. Yeah, I mean, because you know when you look at the chorus, it's him understanding now why it's happened he's you almost feel like he's there is this a little bit of optimism that creeps in in the chorus because you know the i've learned that love's not a possession and um you know it's just like there's this brief feeling of you know i know how to be better next time but then it just comes right back into the the crippling depression i was just like but it still doesn't change the fact that she's out of my life right. and coming in with the, the, the damned indecision and the cursed pride. It's just, you know, he's now pinpointing exactly why everything went wrong. And he's like, no matter how much I understand it, it doesn't change the fact that it still hurts. Okay. It does. And you want to get to the next song. And it does transition very well from the next song because it, it ends without having any of the monumentous, 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 yes, that was the correct word, <laughs> um, changes in dynamics. There is no tempo change. And so we're left in the limbo and something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That is the the monolith of the set i would say not my favorite song still so it's obviously going to be the last one and i'll explain why but this is this is the thriller the thriller this is thriller yes <laughs> so uh this is a i was trying to get you to announce it but uh um, i i picked up on it the same time <laughs> sorry this um this song was actually instrumentally covered on YouTube by some guy who figured out how to make every synthesizer sound exactly, perfectly, exactly the same. And my dad will watch it on a daily basis. And it will mess, <laughs> it, it will mess with me because it sounds Good old just, guy. It sounds just like the album. And so I'm expecting Michael to come in and start singing. But he doesn't. It's, it's it's like, a guy that sounds like Lemmy instead. No, he doesn't. He doesn't sing it at all. <laughs> he doesn't sing it at all. It's like it's it's. I would almost rather have Lemmy come sing it. You know, but uh, well, okay, Lemmy wouldn't sing it. There'd be a giant bass guitar behind it, um, behind the mix. But um, no, and so I I never actually through all the months or so of my dad having known about this particular YouTube video, I never actually went to go listen to Thriller. And so it was really satisfying to finally actually hear Michael's voice. And it kind of startled me at first. <laughs> I had gotten you, so used you, to Your brain yeah. was conditioned to hear the I instrumental. Was. But going through that video, he plays so many different things. So many different synthesizers. So many different just things based off percussion. There's many different brass instruments. There's multiple mm-hmm. guitar parts. There are so many different moving parts that they all have to t- 
play a little part, a very, very little part, but when you put them all together, they sound amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you just, you can't ever be taught that. You just have to know it. Yeah. So I put this as number two on the ranks ah, list. Okay. Okay. And this is just one of those songs. I listen to it and I'm just like, I just don't understand how they came up with this, how yes. they made this. Yeah. Because it's so, it's such a, a well uh, crafted piece like this is this is you can tell there's just so much effort about every single minutia every millisecond is being used to its absolute most potent effectancy and uh, and then just the idea of just like we're going to make a a horror movie pop song like who even comes up with that idea in the first place and then yeah. how do you make it so dang good on top of that? Well, I would say that this is like Michael Jackson's Master of Puppets. And you got to hear me out on this, okay? There are, there are many, many artists who have had that one song that has so many different parts to it that are all really, really good. Um, all of the thrash epics are like that. Um, Cemetery Gates by Pantera is like that. Hallowed Be Thy Name is like that. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody is like that. Where every single moment is its own distinct amazingness. They could all be their own song, but somebody had the bright idea of putting them all together, and now it's something that transcends, you know, the artist. And Mm -hmm. that's why I would say that this is. This is objectively not the best song of the set, but it objectively will go down in history, I would say, as Michael Jackson's greatest song. Yeah, it's it blew my mind when I saw that this was not a number one single. Yeah. I was just like, there's no way it isn't. I don't yeah. understand how like this is this is probably the his most you know, recognizable song to where you hear and you're just like, yeah, that's Michael Jackson. Like, if you ask someone, name a Michael Jackson song, it's either going to be this or Billie Jean. That's why I have them as the top two songs. Yes, right. And, uh, you know, I feel like it's, I have a couple theories why it wasn't. Because um, it's six minutes. Thriller uh, Thriller had seven top ten singles. It's um, wow. a record that still stands today. Yeah, well, obviously it's on the top sales list of all time. And the song Thriller was the seventh single released. <laughs> Which, yeah. again, I'm not quite sure why it was this, the last one of those seven. But it almost – you could almost maybe say that there was a little bit of fatigue with the album by that point. Yeah. That, you know, had You think if it would have been, been released first that it would have been like – I don't think – I don't think – I think if it had been released like third or fourth, that would have been like the prime time for it to be a number one single. 
Because I think you let some of the more traditional sounding songs like Billie Jean and Beat It kind of be the first ones out of the gate. Then, you know, maybe release something like uh, The Girl Is Mine or PYT and then put in Thriller as kind of like, you know, all the singles were leading up to this, you know, this this big song. I mean, you know, at the time it was the most expensive music video ever made. And, oh, you know, right. and you guys have all seen that. I'm and sure. they, they Ghost basically covered it, <laughs> it with rats. <laughs> and it's, um, it would have just been, I think, and again, who am I to question the great Michael Jackson on how he releases? But it's I'm I'm curious as to why it was wait why it waited all the way to the end. It feels like it was such an obvious choice to put on the radio and put out as a single. Yeah, exactly. Like why like why would you release Human Nature as a single before Thriller? I've not heard of that song. So there you go. It's I would say it's probably of the seven singles off the album, it's the least recognizable. Yeah. But it was released as a single before Thriller was. But who knows? There could have there could be a reason that I just don't know about. Yeah, Thriller has but, transcended that album. Yes, and so I I feel like that this song over time has just continued to grow larger and larger and larger until now it's the cultural touchstone that it is. I mean, is there is there a more iconic music video maybe ever? Yes. Than Thriller? Besides maybe Bohemian Rhapsody? Yes. Uh, give me uh, about an hour and I will... <laughs> See, then that the defeats the purpose. Then it's the one that you think of immediately no. when you think when if you were to ask someone what's what's the biggest music video of all time, you're gonna think Thriller. It's got the most iconic images. The, the everyone knows the dance moves to it. Yeah, that's true. It's just it's a it's a music video that changed music videos forever. There's almost kind of like, even you look at his own music videos before Thriller, it was that first one to have that big grand production to it. It was the first time that they put a Hollywood budget onto a music video. They got John Landis, who was an actual Hollywood director, to make the music video and do all of his crazy special effects on it. Cause he was the same guy that did American werewolf in London, which if you've never seen the, the werewolf transformation in that movie, it's one of the most fascinating and grotesque things you'll ever see. <laughs> it's pretty insane, but it's, uh, I actually like when I watched it, just what preparing for this episode, I saw that John, I was just like, Oh, that makes so much sense. And I never knew that. Huh. And so, so my obvious—I mean, just my obvious favorite part of the song is the end. Like, oh, the, yeah, yeah. With whenever it brings the organ in and and the and uh, Vincent Price, yeah. 
it brings it it brings it way down after the main structure of the song it's kind of like the breakdown it's kind of the end mm-hmm. of the song we got to change up the riffage and there's yeah. that yeah you know and that's that's probably the instrumentation that i have no idea where they even came up with that sound let alone actually made it work how do you what kind of ears do you have to have to hear that? Quincy you know Jones I mean? ears. Golly. Like that bass line I mean? doesn't land on the one for the rest of the songs. It's like a minute and a half of the bass line not even ever touching the one. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like, what? <laughs> like the guitar line doesn't even touch the one. They It just, it... But yeah, it uh, it really is confusing because awesome. it feels very it feels very grounded, and yet it's, nothing the, grounded. it's the same as um, the rock with you, the same as Billy Jim, where it's just the drums are just driving it, and it's nothing mm-hmm. complicated. They're just the drums are just there, and you can't stop yeah. the drums, and everything else can just like you have the meat and potatoes of the song that are just there. Because that whole end is pretty much it's drums and then that bass synth thing, the guitar organ, and then the organ comes in and that's it. It's like four instruments. Yeah, it's a... It feels larger than life. It's a brilliant way to end the song. Yeah. And... Yeah, Vincent Price is just like... I remember listening to that song as a kid and I like... I had this love-hate relationship of it because the, the beginning and the end of the song always scared the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah, but at the same way, I was always looking forward to that feeling My because that la- that laugh at the end is genuinely spine-chilling. Michael Jackson did what Black Sabbath wanted to do: was scare people with music. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> just how how bold to do that in a pop song again yeah. it's just like you think about it's just like who who came up with this idea because it's brilliant it but is. i gotta say that my my actual secret favorite moment of the song is that surprise double chorus on the third chorus <laughs> where they do that when crazy, where the, they crazy do the, hit stuff the, the climb up the da, 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 and then all of a sudden just like oh it's another course yes yeah <laughs> that always gets me every time it's really weird because i used to i used to listen to this song a lot before i was big into music production and everything and i always heard that there was some weird synth line you know in the in the chorus where he'd say because this is thriller or whatever and then there's like uh there's a keyboard line that echoes it and i thought it was just somebody singing the echo but it was pushed through like some weird eq but no that's actually a, a keyboard line that's just repeating that over and over again and it's it's those little things that that all come together to make the big picture that mm-hmm. are 
really hard to do. I don't think I don't think for the rest of the we've come a long way from Billie Jean. Yes, we have in this set already, and we're not even done. Coming from just a very simple bass line and you know some guitar parts here and there and some you know keys wherever you want with the super simple drums. Now we still kind of have the simple drums, but everything is so active. It's like Earth, Wind, and Fire if they played Megadeth. If they played horror pop. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just this, this song we could probably go on for another hour. Probably. Anything else you guys want to throw in there before we get to the finale? Other than uh, what we mentioned right before we started recording this, where, fun fact, Toto is Michael Jackson's studio band. Oh, yeah. So all of the the drum stuff that you hear, all the guitar stuff that you hear, it's Toto that's playing it. Just blow your mind. Good old Toto. The super band Toto. Now, are they... do we have to, are they on all of these songs? Um, I know they're on Billie Jean and Beat It and Thriller. I know they're for sure on those three. Whether they're not on the rest of the album, I'm not completely sure. I mean, Toto is just a bunch of session musicians, so... Yeah, they're a super group, but they're a super group of people that you wouldn't necessarily know already. Yeah. It's not like your normal supergroup where it's a bunch of guys from different bands. It's a supergroup of it's in the way that Led Zeppelin was because they were pretty much just a bunch of except for Jimmy Page, they were for the most part just studio guys that all I uh in a research for a different episode, I was learning about all of the stuff that John Paul Jones secretly played on. No, and I was just like, I had no idea he played on that, 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 and all these like crazy '60s hits. Yeah, and he didn't get credited on them. I, I mean, he is just—he was the secret weapon of the band. Absolutely. So of, course, of course, he's going to be the secret weapon of the studio. Yeah. But anyway, it's time for us to get to my favorite song of the set. Objectively my favorite. Where oh, I, yeah. Where I would say that for the most part, every facet that you could pick out of a song, this one did it the best. And that is Man in the Mirror. Yes. Number seven on my ranked list. It's number seven. Oh, my gosh. We have to go all the way down to number seven. So what's number four? Uh, number four is Beat It. Ah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And number six is Smooth Criminal. I, I, yeah, okay, that's fair. That's I just, again, when, you when you're Michael Jackson, you've got probably one of the strongest top tens of any band. And that's not band even or discography. That's not even yeah. all, of, all of his albums. That's true. There's probably stuff from the future albums that'll make it their way into the top ten as well. But um, it, it, yeah. And so even if we start from just the perspective of lyrics, this is something more than just, oh, let's write a horror 
song or a horror pop song or oh let's write just a generic disco like uh i wanna rock with you you know it's like there's there's more to this than i am talking about looking about me in the mirror it's like absolutely it's it's wrestling with the moral implications of him having giraffe money and other people not having (laughs) and see i used it there you go and yeah giraffe money is going to be the new thing and how he is wrestling with the fact that he can make a difference and if he's looking to someone else to do it he's not looking at the right place Mm -hmm. and we all have this responsibility and I, i i believe this that we all have this our own personal responsibility that only we can determine for ourselves but we should all determine for ourselves are we really doing what we should to help the people around us yeah i think that's that's good one of the uh one of the positive aspects of michael jackson's legacy as i would say that without a doubt he is the most generous musician most charitable musician of all time really yes because i remember this being such a such a controversial song um i mean not really it's a it's another number one hit and it's kind of endured as one of his greatest songs well i mean controversy sells but but yeah it came i think the the argument came from it being self-righteous which i don't see that knowing yeah him being so charitable it i don't Mm -hmm. see it being like very self-righteous at all i think it's just him saying like these are my motives for why I am the way I am. Mm-hmm. Now, he actually did not write this song. Oh, really? But he absolutely, again, just like I said with She's Out of My Life, he he adapted to make it for himself. Yeah. And he, uh, you could really say that um, this is kind of one of the first songs where he starts to go towards this humanitarian part of himself. I mean, you know, obviously I would say probably the first one would be, uh, we are the world, which he, yeah. Uh, wrote. And that ended up becoming a monster, huge song. Yeah. Yeah. But that side of him, you know, like heal the world and, um, you know, Earth song to where it's he's really trying to have this, you know, be good to each other, take care of the planet type songs where he's I believe and this is again feeding into why I think that he was not doing what he did with all the children was that he truly had this in a way a childlike view of just saying if we could all just be better to each other the world would be a better place like he viewed it in such simple terms yeah mm-hmm. like he was someone that gave his money away like almost limitlessly like when i say that he had giraffe money he didn't have the giraffes just for himself the reason is so that for everyone that came there he could give someone an experience they would never forget. 
he visited more hospitals than probably any other musician visiting sick kids and giving them, you know, doing make a wish foundation type stuff. Um, inviting so many people on the road with him, inviting so many people to Neverland, giving to all these different organizations. Like I would say without a doubt, he is the most charitable mm. musician ever because I think that in the end, he probably didn't really care if he had lots of money. He wanted to make sure that everyone around him had what they needed. Hmm. And you can really see that man in the mirror is almost like his challenge to himself. He's He has, by that point in 87, reached that absurd, obscene level of wealth that 99.999% of people will never have. Yep. And I think that he really saw the lyrics of the song and was just like, I've got to change. And this was the beginning of him starting to try and be that person. Of course, when people do that, they're going to think, what's the real motive here? You know, what do you oh, you're not really meaning that. You're just trying to look good for the camera or, you know, it's so hypocritical. You've got all this money and you're telling us to go make a difference. What right. are you doing? And it's so easy for us to not pay attention to what he's really doing. And that's all the good that he did. And And another aspect of that you can talk about songs is the flow this this song flows super well it mm-hmm. flows much like the way that thriller does where it it but it feels so natural mm-hmm. every moment is crafted perfectly Baked even to the outro and there's the dynamics there that weren't there for she's out of my life whereas the fake the fake outro this yeah this is another this is another subdued song kind of towards the beginning but as you progress through the song it's it's like another one of those kind of like one where it goes up and up and up and up and up but then eventually Mm -hmm. you have that that outro of course but um yeah and that gospel choir mm. yeah yeah the, oh it, it adds such a great flavor that's that that's another thing like too nowhere, yeah. the key change out of nowhere is great yeah and the fact that it comes halfway through instead of at the end yeah <laughs> i feel like that's such an uh unusual choice but so effective because you don't expect it coming at that point in the song. And so when it does, you're just like, wait a minute, what? We have more song to go. The outro is amazing. I like, it's just like, we're just going to stay on the four. And it, and and it's just, it just stays on the four. Staying in the suspended mode or the Lydian mode. Yeah. Is just, (laughs) oh, oh man. That's how you get me to like a song instantly. (laughs) And then, and then Um, they still have the choir kind of coming in with those stabs. Yes. With the, with the stabs. And that's another thing too, is the instrumentation of everything. 
was really really good the writing the production where what every instrument was playing but not not only that but what every voice was singing and the mm-hmm. the other part of that is you, if you really listen closely to michael himself sometimes it will be just him singing just one voice sometimes it will be you know a harmony just on one word sometimes it'll be for a long stretch and then sometimes you'll notice it's multiple of michael singing the same note and it sounds completely different it it sounds more optimistic because he's now singing you know in a higher register there's more instrumentation behind him for the verses they're very relaxed and it's just one voice and it's like he's singing from his heart it's like this is what i see this is how i feel but when it goes to those multiple voices it it gets to the point where it's like and this is what i'm gonna do about it and this is how i'm gonna change and this is how kind of like my challenge almost to to the listener of like are you gonna do this too maybe not in a self-righteous way but like just a thought it's almost in a it's almost in a i can do it and if i can do it you can do it almost just like yeah yeah almost like there's an excitement just like he just he just figured out the secret and he wants everyone to know right it's it's not like a you need to do this like michael jackson wants you or whatever not even not even like that but just like uh yeah kind of like let's all do this together just think about it and get back mm-hmm. with me at some point kind of <laughs> if whenever you're ready i'm here with you whenever you're ready yeah exactly exactly it is kind of i'll be on the but yeah i'll be on the front lines yeah it's it is it's still that childlike feeling kind of that mm-hmm. we talked about in our first segment but it's it's tangible yeah one uh, one thing I would be remiss not to mention is that this is probably my wife's all-time favorite song. Really? Yes. Well, I mean, she picked a good song. At least like, it's not like, I don't know, she's out of my life or something. Hey. Uh-uh. <laughs> That's not allowed. <laughs> or that Violent Femmes song that I crashed (laughs) and I feel really bad for now but I really don't like that song okay whatever (laughs) well we don't do bonus songs anymore so (laughs) yeah we don't but But yeah she anytime the song comes on she belts it loud she and when I told her I was doing a Michael Jackson episode the first thing she says is like man in the mirror is going to be on there right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i said and i said don't worry it is yep and then she didn't believe me and she made me play her the set to make sure is that another and she was starting that you put it at the end just to well it's just i it's mean just a good ending i have to what i think it was her reaction she no she convinced me of how good of a song it was because it was a song that really kind of wasn't on my radar as much and then she just would listen to it. Over. I was just like, oh, I didn't realize how good this song was. And of course, I knew that she would be very happy. Yeah, before, yeah we were getting 
before I listened to the set, I would I would have said that man in the mirror. It's kind of like the typical cliche Michael Jackson song that I don't like. Really? Uh-huh. Okay. It's just like, oh, man in the mirror. Okay. You know, man in the mirror. Great. It's the Michael Jackson song that got really famous that I didn't think was that good. You know, I thought it's like Justin Timberlake and Mirrors. Where I'm just like, I freaking hate that song. You know? I I will say I had a strong negative prejudice towards this song before I actually listened to it in the set. And that's, that's exactly where tell, I'm at. I'm telling you, the set... It's so important, and it changes. I know. It is. It changed. It completely changed my opinion of the song. Completely, like one hundred eighty, changed my opinion. I don't. I see it as a a finale, and I don't know why I didn't see this before. I was. Um, I was. I had to have been like eight or nine or something, and it it was probably. Yeah, because it's probably around the time that Michael Jackson died. Was it was when Astro Boy came out that that uh, that animated movie? We and mm-hmm. um, Family Friends. Oh, I love Astro Boy. And another. Uh, I never saw that movie. Oh, uh, all all the all the boys went to go see Astro Boy, and all the girls went to go see the Michael Jackson movie. Oh. Uh, and so, Astro Boy actually finished first, and so then. We may or may not have broken the law, but like caught the last portion of the Michael Jackson movie, and this so this is it. This was this yeah, and this was the song I think at the end of the movie. That makes sense, and it makes so much sense now why they would put it there because it is in that suspended Lydian mode of like we are now transcending. You know, it's the transcendent yeah. ending. And even at the like, yeah, at the end of a set, like holding out on the four like that, you could just imagine him just leaving the stage and and waving and bowing and while that's yeah. going on, and then he just leaves, you know. Or or, or mm-hmm. the the band just doesn't want to leave the stage. The almost like the lights are almost out. Yeah, it's like how do you end after that? And and it's like <laughs> they don't want to put down their instruments. No one wants to go home, but it's time to just, it's time for the concert to be over. And you can just leave everyone on such a positive note as well. Giving yeah. It's almost like you're, you're the, the song ends and they have like something to do. They've got an action step to take now. Michael Jackson just told them to make that change. So by God, you're going to do what he says. <laughs> <laughs> do what he says. Yeah. Anyway, that's great set. That is our set. I could go through other facets of songwriting that make this song really up there uh, objectively, but we quite frankly don't have the time. I think it's time for us to take another break. And when we come back, unless you guys have anything else to say, we will come back Um, and we will, yes. I think we're good. I think we're good, too. So, anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts, and then we will end the show. So, stay tuned.
Hey everybody, welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done with segment number two, which is our weekly playlist. Our six songs from Michael Jackson were Billie Jean, The Way You Make Me Feel, Rock With You, She's Out of My Life, Thriller, and Man in the Mirror. And now it's time for our final segment, which is Final Thoughts. So Grant, after listening to the set, and we kind of talked about this last time with Man in the Mirror, but after listening through the set, which everyone listening should go do for themselves. Um, how has the set list in our discussion today uh, changed your thoughts or influenced your thoughts on Michael Jackson as a whole? Well, I, I will say not much has changed about his music specifically. I am looking forward to if Lucas ever gets the time to rearrange Thriller in the way it should be. I do want to listen to that. <laughs> Uh, because Lucas is a really good arranger, as is evident by this podcast. Um, and so I think that bringing, bringing songs that are on that album and turning them into something that's really transcendent, I think that'd be amazing because the songs are already really good. Um, and I've known that for a long time. I've known that Michael Jackson has good music for a long time. I've known a lot of his songs. Everyone covers him around Tulsa. So uh, if if your local pop cover band isn't playing, you know, PYT, then, like, why do you have them, right? Um, <laughs> that's right. But, that's no, right. for real. Like, that's that song in particular for some reason. But... Um, I would have to say most of my change about him has, has been from man in the mirror, as well as just his personal life. I didn't know a lot about his personal life. I just, I knew that he was very eccentric, but I didn't understand that he was just, he was just an older kid, you know, and that makes sense to me now. And I think that, if I go back and listen to all his music, I think I will now kind of get that vibe. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but viewing it through that different lens, I think will open up a different, different facet to me about him just as an artist. And I think that it's too early to tell what the implications of that are going to be with me listening to his music. But I'm just, I am, I'm very open-ended after this podcast. It's, it's, it's answered a lot of questions and raised twice as many. Yeah. I think for me, I don't know if that's what Lucas wanted with this, but that's what's happened. So yeah, I want, I want you to be left wanting more. Okay good then that's there you go you did your job if you're if you're just like i now know everything i need to know and i don't need to revisit again then it's just like well darn it (laughs) (laughs) well but yeah yeah so that that's with me i think that this this set list was the perfect set list for people that have never really dived into michael jackson as much which i think is actually becoming more and more popular because like the the next generation of musicians it, it, they michael jackson you know died in 2010 10 and some of some of the people listening to this were like you know 12 you know whenever yeah. that happened and never really got to experience his music you know uh 
in whenever they were younger like we did but the i think this so one lucas this was great <laughs> i i think the oh, was, thank you even though i had heard uh all of these songs before the ordering them was really important especially for man in the mirror i think the two things one from a songwriting standpoint it's good to go back and just look at the greats because you can you start to see kind of a pattern in their songwriting for like from the the great songs that they do write and it just kind of brings you back to center to be like okay yeah this is at the end of the day like songwriting is an art but it, it not that it's super formulaic but like there's just things that everyone's ear just gravitates towards stylistically you know Mm -hmm. So it was good to kind of revisit it on that kind of level. But I think I haven't like really gone back and listened to Michael Jackson in a long time. And so after taking another listen through the set list, it just kind of like solidifies him as the king of pop. Like it's just kind of, he still has that kind of indisputed, you know, kind of heavyweight champion of the world title still just draped over his shoulders and I don't think that we're going to get um, I mean I guess people have gotten close in the pop realm to being on that status but they always just come just shy of Michael mm -hmm. and so going back through I think has just increased my uh, respect because you just you know a long time it's like okay yeah thriller is a great song and then you go back and you actually like listen to it the way that we listen to the songs and it's just like wow thriller is an incredible song <laughs> thriller is not just like oh yeah that's a good song it's like thriller is a ridiculously good song and yeah. so just going back through you just gain a lot more respect so that would be my take yeah yeah so, for me, I think just the biggest takeaway is just truly understanding how good of an artist Michael Jackson was. Because I was more in the camp of he's a good singer, he's a good performer, but I didn't view him as much as an artist, as a musical genius, I kind of always described him as just he happened to have the right songs at the right time and he had a really good voice. Mm -hmm. And I kind of never saw it more than that. This research has completely flipped that entire concept in my mind. I now see him as someone that deserves every bit of recognition and admiration because not anyone else could have done what he did and no one else has. He is, again, he's in that upper echelon of the musicians that no one else could have done what they did. He, he is not only what I would say, probably the greatest performer of all time. And, you know, even topping uh, Freddie Mercury. I say just, you know, in the rock and roll world, nobody touches Freddie. But if you're going to talk about just, and especially just as I was watching 
Like we didn't even really talk about his dancing. Yeah. Yeah. And That's that was that such a yeah. Just really kind of watching a lot of that for the first time and from an adult perspective, just paying attention to the way he's doing his moves. Like when you're watching him as a kid, you're just like, whoa, cool moves. <laughs> but <coughs> maybe edit that out. Great. Yeah, make a nasty note. cough. Um, just the um, the way that he choreographed everything. And it's just like, I don't know how he did it. He was really the first person to come around and just make it an all-around show. And he did it at a caliber that no one has done since. I mean, just watching him on stage, it's just there's this, there's this charismatic energy that just radiates off of him. That even if you are a Michael Jackson hater, if you watch it, you will be won over to his side instantly. It's that level of power. Top that with his musical knowledge and his incredible singing. I think you pair all that together, yeah, I think he might be the greatest performer, all-around performer of all time. I just, watching some of his music videos, like watching the Smooth Criminal video, just like, I can't even comprehend or fathom putting that together and he's doing it so well such a visionary mind for how to entertain an audience yeah and um i just i think that that's that's the knowledge that i gained from this is just that level of just pure artistry that he has and that it's not just a voice so that was that was a pretty cool thing to discover and of course realizing that has made me a much bigger Michael Jackson fan than I was previously so I'm very glad that we did this episode yeah this was yes, a good one me too. it was packed I'm sure Ethan is because this is like his He's talked about this artist many a time in previous episodes, but um, easy to talk about. No, yeah. that's true too. Yeah, and we're gonna start um, branching out into more diverse musical territory. Um, I'm really, really excited about some of the things that we have coming up. Um, you were gonna say uh, who our artist for the next week was, and the coincidence with them. Yes, so if you tune in with us next week, we are going to be talking about Jimi Hendrix. Woo! And the week that I was researching was the 50th anniversary of his death. Oh, wow. And I was listening to his uh, biography, and they were talking about the date that he died. I was like, wait a minute. That's like in two days. Wow. <laughs> I was like, and it's and it's fifty. Like it's not just any old yeah. year, it's not forty seven or a weird number. Like it's the big number fifty. And so I was just like, What are the odds that that would happen? Yeah, it's crazy. I'm excited about Jimmy. I have I have 
uh, a very, very, very basic understanding of anything that Jimi Hendrix has done. I will say same, same, same with me. That's a big reason. Well, and because it's this is the first of our fan suggestions. We've gotten multiple people asking for a Jimi Hendrix episode. Yeah, but. I also was very interested because, like, I knew next to nothing about him. Yeah, this is literally going to be one of those set lists where even even looking at the songs, I'm just like, I don't know these. <laughs> yeah, this was a, a very fun set list to build because it was all built based on me having to do the listening first. Because I was just like, I have no idea what songs I'm going to pick. Yeah. So yeah, tune in next week, 9 a.m. Central, to hear us talk about Hendrix. Um, hit the subscribe button, and it'll let you know when uh, that episode is available. And uh, thank you guys so much for continuing to support us, for listening to us. Um, if you want to continue to support, uh, head on over to Patreon, become a patron, and follow us on social media. Our, we've got episodes on YouTube now, so if you like that platform, you can check us out there. And um, let us know what artists you want us to cover in the future. We are uh, definitely really just starting to spread out musically. We're not just going to be talking about rock and roll and heavy metal anymore. We're going to start getting into pop and R&B, and funk, and jazz, and classical music, and everything in between. You know, if it's, if as long as it's good, we're going to talk about it. So make sure that you guys are um, letting us know who it is that you want us to, uh, to cover in a future episode. And I believe that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music.